we'll go ahead and get started now. Uh, again, Mike Sag from University of Alabama at Birmingham. And uh, with me today is Dr. Penny Moore, who is at the University of Witzlander from Johannesburg. Well, I just call it Witz, which is why I probably butchered the, the actual name of the school. <clears throat> She's um, a PhD researcher in virology, has been there <clears throat> for almost a little over 20 years. And what we're going to talk about today are SARS variants. And the reason uh, that uh, we'll get into the reasons why Dr. Moore got into um, this, but uh, Penny, maybe you could take us back to that discovery where you um, noticed that there was a variant in South Africa. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, so actually my lab um, historically has been an HIV lab, and we were trying very hard to continue being an HIV lab. Um, we, uh, we were watching the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic take take uh, take a grip um, and we were very gradually setting up assays because we knew we would need them at some stage but really where we uh, became completely embroiled in the SARS-CoV-2 variant story was with the discovery of the variant um, that's now called alternatively B.1.351 or 501YB2 or beta as or beta I think as Americans prefer to pronounce it um, so that um, that happened um, towards the uh, end of last year, October, November, December of last year. Um, South Africa was entering our second wave and we wondered why that second wave was taking off with such aggression. Um, and so um, Tulia Dolavera and colleagues who are sequencing experts went in and looked quite deep at why, why we were getting the second wave. And it turned out that um, the second wave in South Africa was almost entirely dominated, more than 90% by this new variant. Um, and this new variant had a series of really interesting mutations um, that we knew spelled trouble. Um, and that's really when my lab got stuck into it um, is because we wanted to understand exactly how much trouble we were in um, and what, how we could help try and um, mitigate the problems that we thought were coming. Right. So when you say that there was a second wave in this variant, was there, was it that people were getting infected the second time? With this, they didn't have immunity to the second variant, to the new variant? Yeah, I mean, Mike, that turns out to be the case, but actually we were probably facing a second wave in the same way that every other country was facing the second wave. I mean, this does seem to be a global trend. South Africa, in fact, is now um, heading into a really scary third wave. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of time gap between these waves seems to be horribly predictable at the moment. Um, so um, our third wave is also dominated by the South African variant at this stage, so I'm pretty sure that's going to change. Mm -hmm. um, so it was more a case of intensified genomic surveillance. So basically, we looked harder um, yeah. because we saw the numbers creeping up. So we looked harder to see what the virus was, and that's when this variant popped up. And at the same time, uh, we, weren't, we weren't alone in detecting the variant at pretty much the same time, uh, the variant now called Alpha. Uh, B.1.1.7, I think, um, was picked up in the UK. Right. And I think that was really when we realized as a, as a scientific community that variants were going to be our future. It wasn't the first variant. Um, you know, we had um, watched the, what's called the D614G, um, a mutation um, that um, arose uh, long after the first uh, cases of SARS-CoV-2, but rapidly, rapidly came to dominate across the world. And that should have warned us. Um, that should have warned us of what was coming. But I think we were... We were hopeful um, that SARS-CoV-2 was a relatively unchangeable virus. We turned out to be very wrong. Right. So I think it's important uh, to point out a couple of things. One, that the actual number of cases who people who had had the original, let's call it wild type SARS-CoV-2, really weren't necessarily getting infected with the uh, South African va variant <clears throat> so much as the South African variant was a little bit more infectious and so it spread a little more and then like you said um there were second waves really all over the world and that just happened to be dominated by this uh, uh we're going to call it beta or beta well beta beta and uh and <laughs> it started popping up so let's yeah. let's go back to basics uh, and i think that's important for all of us <clears throat> especially with hiv so um hiv is a really good template for our understanding of, of SARS-CoV-2s. And um, like you, I, I did work in virology 
on HIV when I was in my fellowship and early faculty, looking at genetic variation. And what we had discovered was a, the question of the quasi-species, a simple experiment of asking the question of a, of a man who was infected with HIV who had a large number of sexual different sexual partners, many of whom were infected. We asked the question, could he be super infected? And at that time, it turned out that he really wasn't super infected. We saw a large number of highly related yet genetically distinct variants present in that guy, uh, but that wasn't, it was, there's no evidence that he was super infected. Rather, what had happened was that an initial variant popped up, the immune system responded, and then that original variant was suppressed, but the, the genetics allowed the escape mutant to show up where the immune system didn't get it. And then you get this cat and mouse game where they gets caught and then it comes up with a new variant. Um, and that's kind of what we saw. So can you relate that to what you think might be going on with the SARS-CoV-2? Yeah. Um, so I had, I spent, I've spent the last 20 years studying that cat and mouse game in HIV. And in HIV, you know, we, we expect, we expect that virus to change. Um, it, it does, it changes really, really fast. And I mean, Mike, you're talking about the number of the quasi-species, and essentially that's like a related swarm of viruses within one person. And there's a huge diversity in HIV just within one person, a massive amount of diversity. So, um, you know, we kind of expect that, we're used to that, and that's why, that's why making HIV vaccine has been so incredibly challenging. Um, when SARS-CoV-2 came, came to the front, you know, it's a coronavirus. Um, and coronaviruses are a little bit different to HIV in the sense that they're much slower to mutate. Um, when uh, we were talking, Mike and I were talking yesterday, and, and he's, he, his um, description of this is that uh, coronaviruses have a spell check, which I thought was a fantastic um, description of this. So essentially, every, every time um, coronaviruses mutate, um, every time they replicate and make more copies of themselves, they're pretty careful. Um, to make sure that they don't introduce too many errors. HIV, on the other hand, introduces tons and tons of errors. And that's why, that's why Mike had to study the quasi-species as part of his fellowship. But for SARS-CoV-2, you know, it's, it's really a slow, slow coach compared to HIV in terms of the rate at which it picks up mutations. It does pick up mutations. I mean, all viruses do that. Everybody does that. You know, that's, that's particularly true of viruses, but not just of viruses. And that's why we, all, we are all different from one another. This is kind of really basic, um, you know, basic, basic evolution. But what we had really hoped with, with SARS-CoV-2 is that that spell check, as Mike calls it, and I'm going to steal that for the rest of my life, um, that spell check um, meant that we wouldn't have to deal with the level of variation that has made it so incredibly difficult to develop a SARS uh, an HIV vaccine. And to some extent, that has turned out to be true. I mean, we have got lots and lots of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, COVID vaccines, and they, they work pretty well. Um, but the, the question that we have to deal with is, is what's going to happen in the future, because although SARS-CoV-2 mutates relatively slowly, um, the fact that we have these millions of mutations and uh, millions of infections across the world has really given that virus every single chance it needed to mutate. If we could limit the number of infections, we'd probably be okay. But globally, the number of infections of SARS-CoV-2 we have means that even though it's a slow coach in terms of mutation, it's still getting every opportunity it needs and it is still changing. And that's, that's where the variants begin. Um, really, it's, it's down to the fact that we have too many infections across the world. Yeah, and as we move forward, uh, just want to remind or mention to everybody that there's a Q&A box uh, at the bottom of your screen. If you have questions, please submit them. I'll bring them forward to Dr. Moore. Um, but I, I want to go back even a little bit further um, and just into the HIV SARS-CoV-2 similarities and differences. Uh, starting with the HIV, um, it's about a 10,000 base pair virus, and it replicates about a billion to 10 billion times a day. It has a lot of churn. And as it does that, it'll make a mistake at least once in that production of that 10,000 base pair virus. And the, a lot of those mistakes are, end up being stop codons or maybe non-synonymous in, in a way that uh, are synonymous in a way that doesn't really affect any of the function. But if, if one of those mutations gives that virus a selective growth advantage, especially under immune system pressure, while it might remain a minor variant uh, without uh, any immune system pressure, with the pressure knocking down the dominant population, 
this escape mutant, which doesn't have um, uh, any immune system response to it, becomes the dominant one just by uh, extension. And, and, and that's how this cat and mouse game is played. The, with HIV, there's so many mistakes because it doesn't have an enzyme that does the spell check. But with SARS-CoV-2, even though it's three times bigger, about 30,000 base pairs, it carries with it its own little um, enzyme that allows it to fix any mistakes. It's not perfect. And it's like the humans, our, our DNA has spell check uh, enzymes available. But that's why uh, there's not nearly as much uh, genetic variation in SARS-CoV-2, but there's enough to allow this evolution, if you will. This, it's really Darwin's survival of the fittest and then it escapes and becomes the dominant species at the time. Um, so do you think, uh, now coming back to the population, say for example, in South Africa, do you think it was just a random, by chance, uh, mutation that occurred in the course of the evolution of the virus that allowed this escape mutant to have a growth advantage? I think, you know, I think, as you say, the virus is mutating the whole time. And I think um, what happened in the case of the South African variant beta um, is, is that the, the mutations that happen to arise um, happen to confer resistance to most types of antibodies. And as you mentioned earlier, happen to allow the virus to, to bind better to the host cell. Um, so, you know, all viruses have a receptor that allows them to stick to a cell. Um, and that's the beginning of the infection process. Um, and in some cases, um, how well that virus is able to bind to the host, host cell receptor really changes the game completely for that virus. So a virus that has an advantage in terms of binding, it's, it's, it's pretty simple in, in the sense that it, it allows that virus to bind with higher affinity to, to the host cell. It just means that it has a much better chance of infecting cells. And because it has a much better chance of infecting cells, it infects more of them. And, and it replicates in many cases faster through this kind of transmission advantage. And a lot of what we're seeing now with the variants is, is that. But of course, the other thing we're seeing with the variants, that the, the variants have two distinct advantages. The one is this ability to infect lots of cells. And the other is the ability to essentially become somewhat more invisible to the, to the human immune system. And that's when we talk about immune evasion or antibody escape mutations. That's what we mean is that the virus has changed its coat through the incorporation of one of these mutations to allow it to become somewhat less visible. It's like it hides under an umbrella from the immune system because it's managed to mutate its coat in some way. Right, and so that the, most of these mutations are occurring in the spike protein, correct? So we think of this virus, it's called a coronavirus named after yeah. the sun, right? So it has this, this array of protein spikes sticking out. And right. so these mutations are occurring in here and that is has a twofold uh, effect, right? It's one, is that that spike is where the binding happens with the ACE2 receptors in the airways. So if there's a change that allows more affinity for that binding or tighter binding, that translates into more infectiousness, correct? And correct. then the, the second thing is that that spike also um, is what the immune system is seeing. And if it covers itself or hides under the umbrella, uh, it might not be picked up as, as readily. Those are the- points. Exactly. And that has that that uh, that second point, the ability to hide from the immune system, is what really has scared us about these variants, really, because it gives the, it it raises two really important issues. The first is that um, is that people who have been previously infected, because when we're infected with coronaviruses, we mount a pretty good immune response, but the the emergence of variants which are not recognised by that immune response raises the possibility that that people who were infected, who we assume had some level of immunity may not in fact be immune when it comes to exposure to this virus that is related, but looks different. Um, so that's the first problem that really freaked us out with the variants. And of course, the second issue is that, um, although we have this incredible, incredible success story with COVID-19 vaccines, like we've never seen before, the, the thing is that they're all based on the same spike. So Mike's spoken about all these different spikes and how they changed. But fundamentally, all of our vaccines are based on the same spike, based on the sequence of the virus that was first, first detected when this pandemic began. So this, this possibility, uh, the possibility that we're concerned about is that vaccines that are designed on that spike may trigger the same sort of antibodies that recognize that spike, but may not recognize variants. And that means 
that it's entirely possible, and in fact has turned out to be the case, that, that vaccines are less effective against these variants. And that of course has major public health implications. So everything that we thought, all the maths that we did, um, and Mike's clearly better at maths than me because he understands these things better, but you know, all the maths that we have done um, based on how well we think these vaccines work, based on clinical trials that we've done out in the field, doesn't apply anymore to the variants. So we're rethinking everything. We, you know, fundamentally, everything we knew, everything we thought we knew, we are rethinking. And then just to dive into the data a little bit, uh, there weren't that many uh, clinical sites in South Africa for Moderna or Pfizer, but the J&J did have several sites. And I think what was seen, and you can correct me if I get the numbers a little off, but the overall efficacy, uh, for example, in the United States was about 73% against uh, protection between the two, the placebo versus the vaccine group. But then in South Africa, that protection was about 59, 58%. It was there. There was, there was definitely some protection, but it was attenuated somewhat. Uh, yeah. and, and that was from the variants. So actually the J&J vaccine, so remember every vaccine, I mean, we have to consider every vaccine as a, as a separate vaccine. The J&J vaccine in a clinical trial that was being conducted in South Africa as the variant happened to emerge. Um, so it happened to be completely by accident. It happened to be tested against the beta variant. And actually the J&J held its own pretty well. But the J&J vaccine was um, tested in South Africa to protect for protection against severe disease. In contrast, the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, this is the vaccine that has been de developed out of Oxford, that vaccine was also tested in South Africa in a very, very small trial. And we should get into this in a little bit more detail. In a very small trial, it was tested again, just as the, as the beta variant started to emerge in South Africa. So that, vir vir that vaccine too was in fact accidentally tested against the beta variant. And in that case, we saw zero protection, mm. which is, well, you know, it's alarming, yeah. but, but important to point out that that trial wasn't measuring protection against severe disease. It was measuring protection from mild to moderate disease. So we're not comparing apples and apples here when we do these kinds of experiments, we're comp comparing apples and pears. And it becomes incredibly difficult for countries like, like mine uh, where these where these um, clinical trials were done to take that data and and translate it to public health policy and that that has been where all the difficulties have come out right and to finish that out my understanding although it likely it may be wrong was that for Pfizer and Moderna there's still a fair amount of activity yeah. against the beta virus correct yeah okay. so that's so that's you know it's interesting I think in, in, in vaccine protection, what we're learning is that potency is everything. Um, so what we mean by potency is how much antibody is triggered by that vaccine. So for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, for example, they, they as RNA platforms, they trigger massive amounts of antibodies. And that means that even if they take a knock against that virus with its umbrella, there's still enough activity from those vaccines to be able to deal with the variant. We think this is based on lab assays largely. In contrast, something like the AstraZeneca vaccine triggers low amounts of antibodies to begin with. And so if you have a lower amount of antibody and that takes a knock, you really are dealing with a problem. So potency is king when it comes to vaccines, yeah. that much we've learned. And just to break it down so everybody's on the same page, the Pfizer-Moderna mm -hmm. are mRNA vaccines, which are okay. simply the, the protein spike coding region in a lipid nanoparticle and it gets injected. Whereas AstraZeneca, J&J, are an adenovirus, pretty much a monkey adenovirus, if I remember correctly. And so it's a whole different construct, right? That's right. Yeah, they're fundamentally different platforms. I'm turning on the lights so that I'm not plunged into darkness. Oh, through <laughs> you can see me. All right, we've moved into the light. We've got some questions coming in. So Esther Schumann asks, how fast does SARS-CoV-2 replicate? Uh, mm, it replicates pretty well. You know, this is an acute infection um, and it replicates to pretty high levels, particularly in individuals who become severely ill. The difference between uh, SARS-CoV-2 and HIV in terms of variants, which is what this conversation is largely about, is that SARS-CoV-2 is a very acute infection in most people. And we should also come back to that. So you have a burst of viremia, but the um, immune system rapidly controls it. And actually most of the damage that we see in people who are being hospitalized is long after the virus has been cleared from their systems. It's long-term damage, but it's after the virus is gone. Mostly, the virus is cleared relatively quickly. 
For example, HIV, which probably replicates to very similar levels in people who are infected, but does so for much, much longer. That's a chronic infection. And so a lot of the differences um, in how these viruses um, mutate is down to how long they have in infected people to mutate. Right. And just to be uh, dig a little deeper there. So the uh, initial infection with SARS-CoV-2, it just starts replicating like crazy. Then there's yep. an innate immune response, which is mostly interferon driven. And that drives down the virus by day six or day seven. And people might not show up in the hospital until day nine or 10. Yeah. One thing that's important clinically, and we've said this a lot, but it bears repeating. A lot of folks have been going to these urgent care centers, uh, day two of illness, get tested with a rapid test, and then they get a shot of steroids. And that's really not terribly helpful <laughs> because it suppresses the innate immune response and the viremia lasts longer. So just to take home point clinically, don't give uh, systemic steroids in the first couple of days of illness. The one exception might be someone who has this unusual, very rapid hypoxemia, aggressive infection, then steroids may be of benefit, but that usually isn't until after day six. So the systemic steroids should be held off uh, during that period. Um, yeah, but also worth pointing out that um, during that period of people becoming you know, so ill, it is the innate system to begin with, but then people mount a very, very vigorous antibody response, largely T cells as well. Yeah. And of course, we talked about a cat and mouse game. Um, this is where the pressure comes on this virus. It's not mutating for fun. Um, it doesn't change its uh, spike protein for fun. It changes it to get away from this very robust antibody response that most people develop. So that pressure that our immune system puts on the virus to clear it also results in the virus trying to change. And the longer somebody has that virus and the longer that virus has to deal with people's antibody responses, the bigger the chance is that variants will emerge. And I think a lot of our audience are folks either involved in HIV care or infectious diseases. Uh, and we see this all the time, right? If we use a therapy that is, that's partially effective, but not completely effective, like say monotherapy with nevirapine against HIV, it's not quite potent enough as monotherapy. So it suppresses for a day or two or three, but under that pressure, an emerging variant can just spontaneously pop up through an error in that replication and boom, within 14 yeah. days, it becomes a dominant species. Same thing is here, right? Where it's the immune system pressure. And if it doesn't suppress fairly completely, then that replication is gonna lead to just by chance, a variant that will be resistant to the immune system pressure. And then you've got a breakout. And this is where the issue of people who are HIV positive um, or other immunosuppressed people becomes really critical when we think about where variants are coming from. Um, so as I said, most people have a very acute course of viremia. That means that the virus is under some pressure, but it doesn't have a lot of time to get away. Um, it's rapidly suppressed by the innate immune system and then by the antibodies. It, in that time, it has very limited time to mutate. Um, it has very limited time for the mutations that do happen to arise to come to dominate. So it's quick, it's over. But in people who don't manage to suppress that virus for whatever reason, and in, in many cases, maybe people who are HIV positive or people who are on um, immunosuppressant medication who, whose immune systems are simply compromised in their ability to clear that virus. What that means is that they may, they may actually have replicating virus for a very long time. And in fact, there are a couple of case studies of people who have exactly that. Um, they've, for whatever reason, failed to clear the virus. And actually that virus carries on replicating for weeks and months in some cases. Um, and what that means is that, is that the virus carries on mutating during those weeks and months. And, and that means that that virus has lots of time to pick up the right mutations to get away from the immune system. And then it could be transmitted to somebody else. And then that becomes the wild type virus for that newly infected person. Yeah, and that's why we're so desperately worried about increasing vaccine coverage and reducing the burden of infection, especially in country, countries like mine. In South Africa, we have seven and a half million HIV positive people. Um, that this is, uh, we, have, we have roughly 5% vaccine coverage, I would guess, at best. Um, so really countries like mine, where we have not managed to get the level of vaccine coverage that we should, where we have levels of um, infection that, prior infection that in some communities around 40% of people have already been infected, we reckon. 
we have high levels of HIV, it's like the perfect storm. This is exactly what the virus needs in order to, to generate more and more variants. So this is our, our fear about countries like mine and is, is that we need to get the vaccines out here to get to get control of the variants. It's the only way we're going to be able to get control of variants is to, is to lower the number of infections. Right. And there's a virus loose in your house. I hear it barking. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's, anyway, it's your Jack Russell. So, it's my Jack Russell. I did warn you that I have a, a Jack yeah. Russell who, no, who contributes greatly to all interviews. I don't know if he registered, but he's welcome to attend. <laughs> um, so, so as we go into that, so I guess that means now that because of the variants, uh, South Africa is going to be using almost exclusively the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Is that right? So at the moment, um, our healthcare workers have received the J&J vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine has been rolled up to uh, older folks. Um, and we and many other low and middle income countries are struggling to get access to enough vaccines to, to be able to get them out to the majority of people. Um, so um, at this stage, uh, it's unclear which vaccine will come to be the most commonly used one in South Africa and many other countries. Right. But unlike AstraZeneca, the J&J does have activity against the South African beta virus. Yeah, and you know, I'm pretty sure um, that even the AstraZeneca vaccine would have um, some protection against the beta variant. Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, it was tested for protection from mild to moderate disease. But I'm pretty sure, uh, in fact, I'd bet my life savings on it. I'm pretty sure that that vaccine triggers enough of an immune response um, that it might allow people to become infected, but it will still protect them from severe disease. And that's what we need to understand. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we need to understand what protects people from severe disease, and we need to we need to understand which vaccines do what. And I should add that my life savings are not very considerable, so it probably wasn't very. <laughs> I, I would bet with you, actually. I think you're right. So let's let's get into the more questions. They're starting to come in at a pretty good clip now. A couple of questions about Delta. So let's break it down. Alpha, that's the Great Britain variant. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Right. Although we're not supposed to do this, we are not supposed to do this. The variant first detected in Britain. Right. Okay. Sorry. I'm just trying to <laughs> orient people because that's how we learned it. For, oh, there's a variant in Great Britain, but it's different than South Africa and different than Brazil. So just for terminology, then when we talk about Delta, that's the virus that's emerged out of India, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting virus. Yeah, tell us about that real quick. Yeah, it's an interesting virus because um, it seems to uh, replicate incredibly fast. So it seems to have a transmission advantage. It has some resistance to the immune system, so some antibody uh, resistance, but not as much as the as the beta beta variant. Um, it is slightly slightly more resistant than the um, what we would call the ancestral, the original virus. But I think where Delta is of particular interest is in how fast it seems to be spreading. Where you look at countries where Delta is detected, it rapidly comes to dominate in many, many cases. It comes to dominate almost as fast as that D614G mutation that we watch sweep across the world. And it doesn't really matter whether it's introduced into a background of the alpha or uh, the beta, it still seems to come to dominate pretty fast, um, very fast, in fact, in some cases. Um, so I think this is a variant that we do need to be very concerned about. And you've seen what happens already in the UK, um, where they already, already had to deal with the Alpha variant and are now dealing almost entirely with an epidemic of the Delta variant. Um, I think this um, it shows you a number of things. You know, watch, you watch the, the, the curves of these variants as they take, take over various countries. And I think it, 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 it tells us a lot about the transmission and how, how important the ability is of those variants to, to bind to receptors and infect cells and how much that, that actually determines whether they come to dominate. So Dr. Teferi wants to know what's happening in South Africa with regard to Delta virus. Yeah, so our epidemic here in South Africa is still very much dominated by beta, but we are picking up both alpha and delta in South Africa. And I think South Africa is going to be one of those places that we watch with great interest because it's almost like a, an artificial uh, selection experiment. So we were talking earlier about how viruses incorporate mutations and then they, within an infected person, the one, the, the virus, the quasi species, the, the, the mutant that has the advantage over all the others comes to dominate within a person. And I think what we're doing now is we're going to be watching what happens in countries at a country level scale to see how these viruses compete with one another. Essentially, it's it's like watching 
a bunch of variants that are all wearing different types of shoes and we're going to watch the variant that has the Nike tackies win over the one that wears Converse tackies and doesn't run very fast. Well, it's true, but you know, all, all epidemics, as they say, are local, meaning transmission still person to person. But when you look at the whole population, this is really what you're talking about is yeah. how, how dominant one, one type of shoe is over another. Um, Helen Turner asks about uh, the COVID diagnosis. Um, what's the risk for a COVID diagnosis in a fully vaccinated elderly person who has comorbidities, for example, HIV, lung disease, obesity? In other words, how yeah. are they protected pretty well with the vaccines? Yeah. Um, so again, Helen, it depends on what you're measuring. So, you know, if you're measuring protection from infection or you're measuring protection from severe disease, and I'm going to go with the latter because I think that's probably what matters is whether, you, whether you're going to die. Um, if, if you've had two doses of, for example, a Pfizer vaccine, you are extremely well protected from severe disease. So, so you're, you're, despite all your comorbidities, people who um, are immunocompromised, people, uh, for example, transplant recipients, um, folks who are um, receiving things like rituximab, Mabsera, um, it has many names, um, but these are um, treatments that essentially pull down all of your B cells. B cells are the cells that make the antibodies. So folks like those who are receiving those kinds of treatment mount a much less um, potent response to vaccines, and those folks are not that well protected. So it very much depends on which comorbidity you're speaking about. In South Africa, we have very few backup plans, but in the US, um, folks who um, do not mount a response because, for example, they're on Mapsera, have a backup plan um, of monoclonal antibodies. And that's something else we can get into um, if it's of interest. Yeah. Um, I'd like to segue over. We're talking about immunosuppressed patients. Uh, Catherine Goldman asked mm. a question about immunosuppressed patients um, who are more likely for longer and uh, illness or, or production of virus and mutants. So the question is, why aren't we using more monoclonal antibody in them uh, to help them along in shortening the course of illness? I think I could probably take that, but I'll, are you all using much? Go for it, that? go for it, Mike. Okay. I think we'll, well probably is, agree, Let's see if we okay. disagree. So, so you're, you're exactly right, Catherine. That's what we try to do. Um, at least at our institution, we've had a very active monoclonal antibody clinic since uh, late December. And have seen well over maybe 1,100, 1,200 patients now. And we push hard for the immunocompromised patients to get in there as soon as possible for the exact reason that you're saying, because when we give the monoclonal antibody, especially within the first day or two after onset of symptoms, uh, it knocks the viral load down dramatically and allows, you know, sort of gives air support for the infantry is like the way I like to call it, where that it just helps the immune system clear the virus a lot faster. It reduces duration of illness, reduces severity of illness. So absolutely. Yeah. One of the concerns that we're having is that some of these variants may twist their way out of the effectiveness of the monoclonal antibodies. And so the Lilly drug, which used to be just bamlivimab uh, by itself, now has a second monoclonal with it. Regeneron always had to. And the, the, the point is that even with that, we might see some of the variants emerging away from that. Um, Penny, have you had any experience with monoclonals or resistance? Yeah, um, when, I mean, in, in fact, it was probably our first experiment we did when we first identified the beta virus as being um, important was we took a lot of those monoclonal antibodies um, and we tested them against that variant and saw no activity in many cases and and the and the mivivab, i can never pronounce it properly was one of those in fact. yeah Lily. man uh, was one of them in fact um i think it's important to point out that although those some of those monoclonal antibodies many of them took a huge knock um against the variants people have subsequently isolated much better monoclonal antibodies that um, target parts of the virus that are much less um susceptible to change what we call conserved regions of the spike and those, what, when we talk about a conserved region of the spike, what we're talking about is a region of the spike that's so critical to its function that it has no wiggle room. It can't change, otherwise the virus dies. Um, and those, of course, are, are a major focus for us because if we can isolate monoclonal antibodies that can recognize those conserved parts of the spike, then that gives us a much, much better shot. And actually, there are a number of those monoclonal antibodies out now, which gives me great hope. Also means, also means that if we can target vaccine strategies 
against those conserved regions, then, then we also have a better chance of, of coming up with a kind of a pan-reactive vaccine that will elicit antibodies that can deal with all of these variants. We haven't done that yet, but we have monoclonal antibodies that can do that pretty well. We can copy and paste your exact last couple of comments to HIV, right? With yeah, neutralizing and every other virus. Right, because that's what BNABs do, basically. Yeah, right? and, and flu, um, every, every one of these viruses that mutates, there are parts of them that make them flu or HIV or SARS-CoV-2, um, and without them, they die. Um, and those conserved regions are, are the most important part of, of the virus from a vaccine development perspective and from a monoclonal antibody perspective. Right. Russ Van Dyke wants to know about, can these mutations interfere with or suppress interferon response? Is there yeah, actually, Russ, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Do you know that, Mike? No, I don't. And I, I'm not sure that it I'm not sure that biologically they would, although I, I have a lot of respect for this virus. It can do stuff that we never thought possible. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. but but if it's if it's really the foreign nature of the virus coming in, the immune system innate response, you know, reacting mm -hmm. to it and then calling on the troops. So unless it was producing something innately that stopped that interferon response, I, I don't yeah. think that would be different. I can't think how, yeah, but um, I mean, we do know uh, we do know a lot more about the T cell response because, of course, that's the other arm of the immune system that we tend not to talk about when we talk about escape. And, and I think there's uh, reassuring data coming out now um, looking at the T cell response um, that uh, because the T cell response is able to recognize the whole virus, it recognizes all the bits of the virus, not just the spike, unlike the antibody response. And so there's great data coming out now that shows that the T cells maintain a lot of activity against all the variants. And that may be, is very likely, how these vaccines, even those that lose a lot of antibody activity, are still able to protect from severe disease. I'm so glad you just said that, because, <laughs> what, because what I'm getting clinically are questions from docs all throughout my region um, who are calling me and saying, I've got this person who's on rituximab, and they're mm -hmm. not mounting any B cell response, uh, antibody response at all. And we've given them the vaccine, and I want to know, should I monitor the antibodies? I tried testing. There's no antibody. Uh, yeah. Do I vaccinate them again? And I say, you know, pump the brakes a little bit here. There's more yeah. to the immune response than just the B cells. Yeah, it's a really important point to make. I mean, now in South Africa, now amongst our healthcare workers, that the J&J &J vaccine was the only vaccine we had. And, it, you know, these adenovirus vaccines do tend to trigger, as I mentioned earlier, slightly lower antibody responses. But in the trials that have been done, almost everybody develops antibody responses, but that takes some time. Um, you know, it can take days, weeks. Um, and so what people have been doing in South Africa, and I've been getting a lot of these phone calls, uh, what people have been doing in South Africa is going off and, and testing at the local pharmacy. Most of those tests recognize um, antibodies to nuclear capsid. Those are not part of the vaccines. So those will certainly come back negative. Um, no matter how wonderful your immune response to a vaccine is, you're certainly not going to be able to pick up antibodies to something that was not part of that vaccine. So that's point number one. And point number two is that even if you are measuring, looking for antibodies to spike, which is part of the vaccine, as I said, it can take weeks and months. It's very, very tempting. I totally understand the temptation. I succumbed to the temptation after I received my J&J &J vaccine and I went off and I tested my antibodies. It's very hard to resist the urge to do that. But I think it's really important to say that even if you can't measure antibodies, it doesn't mean that you're not protected. You know, we have really strong evidence that these vaccines trigger other responses, largely T cell responses. And we also, you know, we also have evidence that suggests that even very low amounts of antibodies may well protect you. So important, important not to get too hung up on, I have this amount of antibody or I have that amount of antibody. We, we, we have good, strong evidence from clinical trials that these vaccines do work. That's right. And, and also, uh, the point is made uh, a lot uh, that antibodies, when they're produced acutely, are meant to attack a, an invader. And then our, the host immune response is designed to then downregulate, to stop producing antibody. Otherwise, we'd be fill our, we, we would get viscous plasma with all this antibody flowing. We got to downregulate. So it's normal for antibody to wane over time. And so that's gonna be the challenge for us as we think about, do we need a booster? Uh, yeah. Let's even assuming there's no variance, just when does the immune system start to wane where the B cells that are programmed to produce antibody on demand, uh, if it got exposed to the virus again, 
we might not detect that antibody, but the response still could be there and could be protective. And that's going to be the challenge for us to determine when a booster might be available. Yeah. And I see, I'm looking at the chat as well, and I see there's a question from Iran saying many of us are over six months out after receiving the vaccine. Um, do we anticipate a booster? You know, we, 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 we don't know, yet know how long protection from vaccines um, will last because we haven't had them long enough to assess that. Scientists can only measure what has occurred and, you know, these vaccines haven't been out there that long. But the data that we do have suggests that they do last um, pretty well and there's good what we call durability of antibody responses. Yep. But also important to point out that, that you know, antibody responses, as, as Mike says, are the first thing. And then you have memory. And memory is what's critical. Memory is how our immune systems remember the previous exposure to the vaccine and deal with an exposure to the, to the virus. And we're still learning about that. We have um, very little information about how well our immune systems remember. Um, and, you know, in many cases, many vaccines historically, that memory response is what protects us long after the antibodies have faded to below the limit of detection of our assays. Yeah, so um, this, this is now an international um, uh, project or a program because well, on Zoom, you don't have to travel, you just sit at home mm -hmm. with your computer. So um, this is a question from Dr. Vargas and Ponte who asked about these other vaccines like Sputnik, which is one of the Russian vaccines or, or CanSino or Sinovac. Uh, do you have any evidence or any information on the effectiveness of those vaccines? Yeah, you know, we there is a little bit of information trickling out about them. Um, they, you know, like all of the, like every vaccine that we've looked at, I think every vaccine takes a hit against um, the variants. Um, again, what we need to know um, is what the, what we call the correlative protection is how much is enough to protect you, and and that is something that we still don't have a good handle on. Right. And Glenn Wartman um, has sort of taken the concept of the monoclonals becoming to convalescent plasma that's been associated for some of the variants. And um, do you know if that's been used in South Africa? So in South Africa, we have done a trial of convalescent plasma. Um, um, it, many other countries have. I think, I think that the kind of the sum, summary of all of those trials is that convalescent plasma works if you get in there really, really, really early. If you don't get in there early enough, there's very little effect. And the, and the reason for that is that most people do mount a very robust immune response themselves. Um, and so you're not adding much, actually. Um, and often you're giving that convalescent plasma after the virus is gone. Um, and that's not going to be helpful. Um, so there is this uh, idea out there that convalescent plasma is what drives immune escape. Um, but actually, I would argue that um, convalescent plasma, for example, in South Africa, has, has been used in a tiny, 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 minuscule proportion. But the, the thousands that have been infected in South Africa have mounted their own response. So um, I think that the pressure on the virus is much more likely to come from our own immune, immune responses to the virus than to from that convalescent plasma, which is like a drop in the, in, a drop in the ocean in comparison. So Margaret McCluskey uh, is looking for a reality check from you, Penny. Uh, well, I, Margaret, Margaret always asks difficult questions. <laughs> so here we go. Given the ample opportunities available for SARS-CoV-2 to evolve and strengthen its immune evasion, do you think it's possible for a pan-coronavirus vaccine that will ultimately be required to get us out of this mess? Yeah, I, I do think that there is a possibility that we will come up with a pan-reactive um, vaccine. We don't have one yet, certainly not. Um, but there are parts of the, of the virus that as I said, are unable to change. Um, and it's a bit like the, the this search, this everlasting search for the universal flu vaccine as well. Um, certainly we've identified parts of, the, uh, parts of the viral spike that are less able to change. Um, and I do think that if we, can, if we can focus the immune response on that, it is theoretically possible that we'll have a pan-reactive coronavirus. And definitely, I think Margaret was also asking um, about monoclonal antibodies. Definitely, monoclonal antibodies that are broadly reactive are able to recognize these things. Those certainly already exist. But you know, it's in theory, it all sounds great in theory. I think it will be very, very difficult to, to generate a pan-reactive thing. And I, my, my sense, my guess, um, is that we're looking more like at the flu type situation where um, we will try to keep track of the variants that are emerging across the world and perhaps tweak the vaccines that we have. And we can do that much faster than we used to be able to do. Um, and I think probably what we're looking at is annual shots ultimately um, to try and keep on top of this thing and, and to try and prevent severe infection 
I'm not, I, I, I don't, um, I don't imagine that we'll be able to eradicate this virus anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, Penny. I, I don't see this going away. Going what's away left of, whatever's left of my lifetime. Um, it's going to be <laughs> smoldering in little pockets, I would call them hot pockets that sort of break out, especially in regions where uptake yeah. of vaccine is not very high. And in some countries, it's because there's no vaccine available. In yeah. the United States, there's plenty of vaccine available, but for reasons I can't quite understand, there's not uptake in certain areas, especially in, in my neck of the woods in the southeastern U.S. And that leads to one of the yeah. questions here by uh, Juan Latore, who uh, is bringing up the question of vaccines causes infertility. And this is all over the internet and it's spread really? so much. Yeah, it's spread so much that I'll talk to people, especially younger people who are the number one group not getting vaccinated, those between the ages of 20 and 40. And one of the concerns they have is that they get, let's say Moderna or Pfizer, an mRNA vaccine, it's gonna mess with their ability to reproduce. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I haven't heard it, but I'm not at all surprised to hear it. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and I think a lot of fear. Um, you know, if, when you go into hospitals in South Africa and you talk to healthcare workers who are eligible to receive the vaccine, many of them have chosen not to um, because there is a level of fear about this vaccine. Um, there are certainly adverse events for this for all of these vaccines, um, but there are adverse events for virtually everything we take. When we take aspirin, there are adverse events. Um, so as, as always, um, what scientists are doing is, is, is balancing those adverse events, which are incredibly rare for all the vaccines that have been tested so far against the benefit to people from a from a virus that really is wreaking havoc and I look around me now and I you know my, many of my friends are in hospital you know this is a real thing so so I think what we have to do is to critically look at this kind of information you have to delve down and, and we have to do it ourselves because because you actually end up only trusting your own digging you have to dig down into the data and have a look at the rate of these adverse events events and and have a look at whether you know things like the fact that I will be forever magnetized if I receive a Pfizer vaccine. Think hard about whether whether that's rooted in any reality. Um, so we have to become critical about looking at that data, and we have to communicate. Scientists have to communicate, um, and this is something I feel really, really passionate about. And half my lab do this routinely. Is we have to get out there as scientists. We can't expect people to just believe this. We have to get out and persuade them. We have to give them the data. We have to communicate. Um, this is our job. Um, our job is to develop vaccines and get the vaccines out, but also to get people to understand the science behind those vaccines. It's, it's part of what we should be doing. And, and, and sometimes we use big words and don't do it well. And for us to be clear, there is no plausible explanation why infertility should be associated with a vaccine. Not right. that I'm aware of, and, no, and nor is there any reason I, of for us to be magnetized. And we need to be clear about that. And uh, and when you say dig down, it's hard. It's easy for us as scientists and physicians yeah. to we have access. We know what our trusted sources are. We know how to sort through nonsense and get to the actual <laughs> data itself. But um, th this is difficult for the general public, and if they're getting it off of Facebook or some other source that it's it's unreliable yet it spreads that way so like you said yeah. it's up to us to do that yeah, one, one to thing to your point about uh risk with everything uh, i saw a nice description of uh yesterday in fact who said well people don't want to be a guinea pig for the vaccine yeah okay but but the fact is you're either going to be a guinea pig for the vaccine or a guinea pig for a new virus you have a choice and we know what this, you know, we know what catching this virus means, and especially with the newer variants coming out, like Delta in particular, that it has, it's a little bit of a different clinical profile. It's a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more virulent, not in addition to being more infectious. Um, that's the way you're going to yep. be, you're still vulnerable. You're going to, you could well get this infection and getting the vaccine with now hundreds of millions of people around the world having been vaccinated and no real big surprises based from the original studies, it's a pretty darn safe vaccine as far as vaccines go. Yeah, I think it is, you know, this is one of the things we need to get out is, I, I know people are scared of how fast we've moved. 
we moved fast um, because we had the technologies after years and years and years of trying to deal with um, Ebola and HIV, you know, it, was, it suddenly came together. We had the technologies to be able to move fast. These are not platforms that are untested. Um, the RNA vaccines, you know, this is a, a new new thing, but this is a platform that has been developing. And this is how science works. It, you know, there are iterations and things get better and better and better. Thank goodness. And this is how we have progress. So I understand that there is fear. I, I, I hear it in my community that there is fear about the pace at which we've moved. But but this is because the science is there. And so we've been able to use the science to be able to protect people. And, and we've done so very effectively, I believe. Right. Um... So one question, I guess, is more for me about, are there any update on variants in the United States? Yes, yeah. I think the, you may know more about that. But what I know is that the Delta variant, which was zero uh, a couple months ago, is now 7%. And like you said, Penny, um, this is one that sort of has a growth advantage or a selective advantage, and it can spread like wildfire. Um, it, do you have any other updates or no, do you track that around the world? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's becoming hard to, to track all these things. I, you know, in my lab, um, we try to keep ahead of the variants that we think might become a problem. And it's a bit of a guessing game. So we're constantly scouring the sequences that are available. And I wish I could show you all the spreadsheet that we use to do it, because it, it's, a, it's a Google Docs that the whole lab has to get involved in, because, because the information is changing so fast. So we're forever looking at something and thinking, there's a new variant detected in Mauritius, is this gonna be a problem? And then it turns out to be less of a problem than we thought. And then, you know, the next thing it shifted. So, so at some stage, I think that the line between all of these variants um, may blur um, and it may become impossible for us to define a new variant, um, a little bit like flu, um, you know, and a little bit like HIV, um, where there are so many strains that it becomes hard to distinguish them. And I think, uh, I, I think, that's the level of evolution that we're seeing. Until we get the numbers down, that will continue. Right. Um, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm covering, a couple people have asked a couple questions. I wanna to try to get, include some folks. Um, uh, can I, Mike, can I tackle this yeah. uh, comment from Simon Collins that actually I think yes. is a great comment. Yes, please. Um, which is that please be careful when associating variants with types of people. HIV positive people causing variants is not a great message. I completely agree. Um, and that's actually why I wanna go back to this. That's, you know, I just think we also have to be realistic about um, the risks that are associated with, with people's immune systems. So I agree, the message is certainly not HIV positive people are causing variants, um, but we do need to understand where variants are coming from. Um, and we need to be scientific about it and try to um, reduce the risk of this happening again and again and again. So we do need to understand the science, but I completely agree um, that that's not the message. Um, right. And, and point think, taken. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Simon. Yeah. And if we're going to put it in relative scale, I think someone who's a solid organ transplant, who's on profound immunosuppression is <clears throat> much more at risk for yeah, serious yeah, infection yeah. And, 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 and more, more disease. So yeah. HIV is more on the lighter side of the immunosuppressed. Yeah, and if but it's therapy, a, it is the point is that we do need to avoid stigma in this conversation. So that's why I wanted to go back to it. Is, is a, Thank an you. important point. That's a great point. Um, we've already talked about the need for a booster. We don't know, but would you, coming back to our theme of the day variants, uh, yeah. do you think that, uh, you know, I'm almost certain, but do, do you think that variants will be included in the booster shot? It won't yeah, um, for sure. I, you know, various companies have already moved to include the um, beta beta um, variant in their immune in their vaccine platforms, and that again comes back to the science. You know, we now have platforms where we can move fast. Um, you know, it's a relatively relatively simple thing to be able to swap out the the, the variants um, into the various platforms. The the difficulty will come in how do we define if that vaccine is better than the previous vaccine. So this is something that we are grappling with at the moment is, so the, the manufacturers include beta instead of the original variant. How do we prove that the immune response to beta is better or at least equivalent? Um, so this is gonna cause, this is gonna open up a whole new conversation is, um, is how do we design clinical trials now? Um, or is there some way that we can not do clinical trials and use um, immune bridging assays? So can we, use the laboratory type of tests that I do to, to say the immune response is equivalent. Is that enough? 
Um, so that is something that we're going to have to work out. It's not something that I think we have sorted just yet. Um, so that will be a space where we have to think hard. Yeah. And Russ Van Dyke followed up and sent us a link uh, to a paper that does suggest that there's enhanced immune response ah. evasion uh, by SARS-CoV-2 in the uh, alpha variant. So um, I will go read. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's BioRxiv, which is a preprint sort of website. So um, maybe there is some evidence of that. And we'll get yeah, thanks, we'll have to watch that. Thanks, Russ. Um, we talked about boosters. Uh, what do you think we'll be doing to determine, we know that there'll be variants in there, but how are we going to know when it's time? To switch out a vaccine? No, yeah, or just to bring up a booster. I mean, we just, I think we're uh, going to be guessing, right? I mean, yeah, you know, um, I, I think there are a lot of questions we need to answer first. Um, we need to understand durability. We need to understand correlates of protection. Um, and, and we don't yet have a, a good enough handle it's so one of the big questions, I think, probably the most important question is, is what's, what's, the, what's the bar? Um, how much is enough? Um, so, so until we've answered that question, we won't know when a booster is necessary. A lot of this may turn out to be empiric. Um, I suspect that, you know, in countries where vaccines are widely available, people will end up going for a booster of whatever's available annually. It's what I would do. Um, and I think that will probably end up being where we get our most of our information from. You know, it's the same with mix and match vaccines. That's going to become a big thing in the future. At the moment, we're all, well, most of us, I certainly am very well behaved and I do what the, um, what the vaccine manufacturer said. Um, so for example, J&J um, &J is a one-shot vaccine. You have one shot, you don't. Um, Pfizer, you have two shots and it's very well defined when you, your second dose is. But in the real world, um, where in countries where there is a lot of vaccine available, um, people who had the J&J &J are thinking, mm, let me go and try the Pfizer. Um, and we're going to get more and more information about that. So far, um, I think the data looks great. Um, so in countries where you do have different vaccines so far, it seems that um, having two different vaccines looks pretty good. But, you know, we're going to have to work out the order um, because we may find that people who get Pfizer first and then J&J second do less well than people get J&J first and Pfizer second. I hope I got that right. So yeah. there's a lot, lot of stuff we still have to learn about how well these various vaccines interact with one another. We only have a few minutes left. I'm going to try to rapidly get through a couple of these questions. Uh, Anne-Marie Ball wants to know about thoughts on giving the booster we've, with, with the influenza vaccine. We're noticing that that's okay to do. Maybe we'll do that. We haven't seen much influenza during hmm. at least our winter. Uh, yeah. I think it's because we were wearing masks and staying away from one another. Um, yeah, it turns, turns out that South Africa has also managed to evict influenza from our country for the last year. We're seeing it again now because of, I think, of fatigue and people stopping wearing masks again. Yeah, well, um, it's kind of a scary thing. Yvonne yeah. Newberry wants to know about vaccines for children age 2 to 12. I think the 5 to 12-year-olds, those data will be coming out very soon. And right. for those who are 2 to 5, it's going to be probably into the fall. Do you have any yeah. update on that? Not beyond that, no, Mike. Okay. Um, let's see if I've got maybe one more I can get in. Um, Interesting question from Esther about uh, booster vaccines yeah. in HIV positive folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so actually, we know very little generally, Esther, about um, about immune responses to vaccines in HIV positive folks, and that data is starting to trickle out now. Mostly that data is in uh, people who are well controlled. A big gap that we don't really understand is how well vaccines do in HIV positive folks who don't know that they're viremic um, and have a, a compromised immune system. So that is, that's a huge area where we need to do more work. Right, and Prasanta Dash wants to know about someone who actually had COVID, how long do we wait to give the vaccine? So the, uh, various different countries have different uh, guidelines on that in uh, South Africa. Uh, we recommend based on very little data, I have to tell you. But in South Africa, we recommend that you wait a month after COVID infection and you wait six weeks to three months after severe infection, I think is our latest advice. It's based on very little um, clinical data. Um, I think it's cautious clinicians. Um, and I think if you've had severe COVID, you should be careful. Um, but if you had very mild COVID, then I think, um, you know, a couple of weeks and you, you, you're probably good to go. But um, different countries have different um, advice to give on this, and, and you should look at your country's advice. Right. I think we're going to have to wrap up. Um, I, uh, 
I can't thank you enough, Penny, for um, doing this with us. And uh, obviously the questions were a validation Fantastic that, that we, you were striking a chord with what you had to say. Uh, one of the questions, I think it was from Jesse asked, uh, will this be recorded? Absolutely, it's been recorded and you can access it on the IAS USA website. That's www.iasusa.org. And there it is right on the screen. Um, you can uh, view this one on demand. It might take a couple of days for it to be posted up, but you can refer friends and, and other people uh, who may have registered and didn't um, uh, actually have a chance to join us live, it'll be up. But there's a bevy of other uh, webinars and dialogues uh, that are on the IS USA website uh, that can go from there. So um, Penny, thank you again. It's been marvelous. Uh, appreciate uh, your Jack Russell participating as well. That was <laughs> a little bit more character to our discussion. And especially thank uh, the folks who viewed today. Uh, wonderful questions and really kind of helped move things along very quickly. Uh, we'll look forward to another dialogue sometime soon where we'll, we'll give you a further update. Um, yeah, thanks uh, very much for having me, Mike. And thanks for the wonderful questions, everybody. Yep, great. It'll be available. They just told me within 24 hours online, so we can look there. Thanks so much. We'll sign off at this point. Bye, Brad. Bye.